Today's scripture reading is from Colossians 1, 9 to 14. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is God's word. We're in Colossians chapter 1, talking about the mystery of prayer, and today basically that's what it's about. It's uh, prayer, the uh, uh, what is that, and, and why do we do it, and all that type of uh, stuff. To begin with, um, God's will and His ways uh, are mysterious. We've titled the sermon series Mystery, because we believe that what there is to know about God, He reveals to us, and what He reveals, we could delve into forever and never actually completely fully understand it. Um, For thousands of years, God's plan, uh, beginning in the Garden of Eden, to save mankind from their sin remained somewhat hidden and a mystery in the relationship he had with the people of Israel and the uh, sons, if you will, of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And the writer of Hebrews, if you ever look in the um, beginning of that book, near the end of the New Testament, the first couple of verses say this, that in many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, speaking of the the Jewish prophets that came through the uh, nation of Israel. And in these last days, which will be now, He has spoken to us by His Son. And so we see that uh, everything pointed to Christ, and Jesus Christ, His life, death, and resurrection is the supreme and sufficient revelation of all that can be known about the mysteries of God. And this deep belief is what Paul has. This deep conviction in the Gospel is at the heart of what the Apostle Paul does and says and how he even views his circumstances, in this case writing from prison, And he is writing to a group of people, a church in the city of Colossae, that he has never met. And he is writing with the hope and the goal to reestablish that basic foundation in their faith, the same foundation that came through the preaching of Epaphras, a Colossian who had planted the church in his hometown. And ever since Paul, he says, heard Epaphras come find him in prison in Rome and report to him kind of some disturbing news of what was happening in this young church. Ever since he told him these things, he says that he and his team, and I say team because the letter begins by saying Paul and Timothy. We know that Philemon and Timothy and now Papyrus and probably some others are with Paul. Uh, He's always working in a team. But since he heard about it, he has never ceased to, he hasn't stopped from praying for his Christian brothers in Colossae. And he hasn't prayed, or hasn't stopped praying, because they're basically being assaulted by false teachers who are trying to convince the Colossians that their their faith, their Christianity, is in some way deficient or lacking. 
um, or falling short in some way, that they need something else. And so Paul began his defense of the gospel, that's really what it is, by thanking God, we saw last week, for all the Colossians have already received since the day they first believed. Specifically, three things. For their faith in the reality and the truth of Jesus Christ, His life, His death, His resurrection. For their love, like Christ, that came from that. And for their hope for Christ in His return. So, thankfulness to God, though, for those three things is the is only the first part of his prayer. In verse 9, where we begin today, we see that because of what God has already done through the gospel to produce faith in this church, Paul's already stated that, he now has not ceased to ask God to do more through the same gospel to further establish that faith. And it's important to examine exactly what Paul prays for in this prayer because of a couple things. One, it is the means through which he says you build on the foundation of faith, love, and hope. The things he's asking for. He assumes the foundation has been established and this is how you build on it. And the second thing, in knowing exactly what Paul prays for, I believe it's also the means through which we can understand how we're to protect ourselves from the opposite of those three things, which namely are spiritual doubt, indifference towards our brothers and sisters, and a sense of despair, hopelessness, or the temptation to believe that this is all there is. So we need to know exactly what Paul's pray for. And if you've ever seen Paul's prayers, he, he prays a lot in Scripture, and specifically he prays kind of at length uh, in his prison epistles, they're quite different than we might expect. First, um, the fact that he's not throwing a, a prison pity party for himself uh, for the crisis that he is in, and he actually takes time in a way that he says is unceasing, which we'll talk about, to pray for someone else in a crisis is amazing. I say that's amazing to my shame. Because it's very difficult for me to look past my own crisis and think about anybody else. It's very difficult. Most of my prayers start with me. What I need. What I need to be removed. You know, it's all me-centered for the most part. What are you going to do for me, God? And crisis and difficulty and irritating people and all those things tend to cause us to focus on ourselves and not ever think about anyone else. Paul's in prison with scars from all his persecution that he's experienced, and he is praying for people he's never met. Pretty powerful, if we even just stop there. But I think even more powerfully is the unexpected content of his prayer, not only for what he asks for, but what he doesn't. I like to look at Scripture like, what doesn't Paul say? What doesn't he pray for? And... For my prayers, if I'm just honest about my prayers, if I just kind of like were to put a uh, you know, spreadsheet of my prayer over 40-ish years of life, go, what did my prayers look like? What did I pray for? For the most part, I think that most of my prayers are usually, on average, little more than uh, short, pretty superficial requests for 
pretty material things, not the worst, not like, you know, Hummers and, you know, big houses, but material, earthly things, um, or for things that meet a particular need or a particular crisis right there. That's typically what I pray for, stuff. And again, not the worst stuff, just stuff, practical things, tangible things I think will fix things. Paul's prayers are the completely opposite. They're deeply spiritual, so much so they make me uncomfortable. They're so gospel-centered, and they're so, by my very fleshly way to evaluate things, impractical to fix anything. Like, come on. That's not what we should be. I need to pray that this guy will be gone out of my life, and that will fix things, okay? That's, that's how we pray. <laughs> Smite him with boils. Now, the problem um, is not with Paul. As I read these prayers, I don't go, well, gosh, Paul really got this wrong. He doesn't know how to pray. Even Jesus showed how to pray for more, you know, tangible things. And I don't have time to go into that, but I think we'd be actually somewhat, uh, we wouldn't say that if we actually looked into how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. But Paul's prayer here is going to show us how Christ-centered Christians should pray for ourselves and for others, and it's going to be maybe a bit surprising and exactly what we should be praying for. But before we begin, it says, or before we get into the content, the first thing he says is really disturbing. It says he has not ceased to pray. Like, not stopped. And it's hard enough for me, and I'll just be honest, I mean, I don't say this, to, like, I actually am honest when I'm up here, okay? So, it's hard enough for me to, to stop and pray. Right? To be silent for... Many minutes, maybe even five minutes, because what happens, my mind wanders, I start thinking I don't even know what I'm supposed to be praying, and then I know the football game's on, so I, you know, rush through it, right? (laughs) Praying without ceasing seems like torture, okay? Like, did Paul really pray nonstop? Like, because the... Distance between Colossae and Rome is a pretty good distance, so that's a long time to be praying. Ever since I heard I've been praying for you, praying for because now the letter's gotten back. That's a long time. And what exactly Paul means, I think, for us is really hard uh, to not know, because we're not going to really ever know exactly what it will. It's hard not to know because we don't like the tension of faith. We don't like the mystery of of spiritual maturity. We like specific... That's why religion and legalism is so appealing. Because it gives us something... Okay, I just... There's my box. Check that and I'm spiritual, right? That's what we like. And so those who... When I say religious, I mean... I'm talking about believers who are religious, okay? So I'm talking a negative connotation. And the religious reads that pray without ceasing. I know exactly what that means. It means that I pray a certain time of day. Morning is definitely more spiritual. I pray in a particular place, my sacred space, right? I pray uh, for a specific length of time because it's not holy if it's six minutes instead of seven minutes. Um, I, I pray with my body positioned, you know, I must be like Moses and prostrate myself on the ground or I must be on my knees or my eyes must be closed. Think about that. The reason I tell my kids to bow their heads and close their eyes is so they'll look at each other. 
It's not because God thinks it's like more spiritual. And if you think that's the case, throw the verse down for that. I mean, I understand there's a, there's a holiness to it. There's an approach to God, but that's not what, in my opinion, teaches it. That just keeps them like focused. The religious know that, well, these are the parts of the prayer. And I teach my kids parts of prayer. We go through acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Why? So they just understand what thing they should be praying. But I don't make that like the box to check as an adult. Kind of, well, oh, I didn't adore today. Or, oh, I, I need proper supplication. You know, it gets weird. Now, the irreligious aren't any better. They read it something like pray without ceasing. They go, well, that can't be taken literally. There's no way. That's ludicrous to imagine that. So they never start praying. Well, God just knows what I'm thinking. I just pray to my drive. I don't need to talk. It's like he knows. I'm not really sure that that's what it means either. So we have this tension of what does it mean to pray without ceasing. And I guess Paul is obviously probably using hyperbole, a little exaggeration, because he doesn't say like, well, I prayed for you one time when I heard that you guys were struggling. That would be weird, awkward. In Thessalonians, he says something very similar. In the letter to the Thessalonians, here's what he said in commending them about praying. And it seems like he wants to take us bigger instead of smaller. He doesn't want us to think about prayer in the, in the, in the real... Pra- like, okay, this is what prayer looks like. Although, we really like that. Just tell me exactly. That's how the disciples came to Jesus, and he wasn't very exacting. And what he told them. But Paul says this um, in the Thessalonian letter near the end of the, uh, end, of, end of the book, in chapter 5, I believe. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. There it is again. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Well, if it's the will of God, we better listen. I'm supposed to rejoice always. I'm supposed to pray always, give thanks always. Well, It seems to me that prayer, in Paul's eyes, becomes less about a spiritual moment and more about an entire spiritual mentality and lifestyle. Now, even in describing himself um, of what he did, he's writing less, I think, about exactly what to do and more towards heart attitudes. What's your attitude about prayer should be for yourself and for others? And and though I do believe that the act of prayer traditionally happens in, in somewhat of a formal time, like this is the time I pray, a moment of time, Paul, I don't think, prayed without ceasing. Like, he didn't, you know, oh, Lord, and eat, and then, you know, go to the bathroom, and just all that stuff. I mean, it's silly, right? But he did pray at all times in every circumstance and was constantly, actively in communication with God. All, never for a moment, like, oh, gosh, God, I forgot. You're here, right? It wasn't like that. Constantly. And I, I t- my son is hilarious. Um, my 10-year-old son, I love him to bits. He's just like, he's brilliant. I think he's going to be really smart, which could be really good or bad, depending on which way he goes. So we'll hope for the best, right? And he's an artist and super creative, so he builds these big Lego ships, you know. And So this is a while ago. The other day... He has this Lego ship, and I'm telling him, like, man, don't leave that out because your dad's really big and clumsy, and I might step on it, or your you know, brother might step on it. Something's going to happen to it. So he picks it up to move it, and what does he do? He trips, 
drops it and just shit. And it's like a lot of pieces. And I know it's a lot of pieces because I'm the one that put it together to begin with. Yeah. So it shatters. And he immediately, without a beat, goes, looks up to the sky. He says, seriously, Lord? Seriously. Now, I'm like I'm laughing hysterically. I look at him. I say, are you really going to blame the Lord for that? But... What it showed me, at least in a very simple, childish way, God, he's aware of the Lord's presence. And we don't act like that. You know, this childlike faith is gone when you're like, I don't know what age you hit, where you're constantly aware, and maybe God did. Maybe he's like, God's like, boop, you know, and who knows? But there's a constant communication that I think Paul intends here, and Just as I'm supposed to rejoice always, even if it stinks. Just as I'm supposed to give thanks always, even if I don't feel grateful. I'm supposed to pray always. And I do believe that if we come face to face to the gospel, that we can and should and will delight in imagining what God is going to do. Man, what is God going to do today? What is God going to do tomorrow? We can delight in what God is actually doing. Like I used to study at, uh, I don't do it so much anymore, this is probably why. I used to study at uh, uh, Starbucks and like coffee shops because I kind of like white noise. I was the kid that when I did my homework, I needed the TV on. I just like that. It's just, I need noise. So like sitting in an office by myself kind of freaks me out. But I don't really want to talk to people. Okay? So what happens is I'm writing my sermons. I got a stack of books. Headset on sometimes, and people will come in that know me. Old students, people from the church, friends. So, so I'd go like other places, like I'm going to go to Snohomish to study. But people always came in. I used to get so bothered. They can't I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't let's say leave me alone, but I'm like, man, i got so much to do. i got to get this done. i got to sit and study and pray. And I released that one day, and I began to delight in what God was doing because of a couple interactions we had. God knows what I have to get done, and I would tell him in that moment, be like, well, you know, Lord, i got to get this done, but obviously you want me to have this conversation. So I had that conversation. It's actually pretty fun. Things go wrong. Things go right. People come across your path, and you're like, hmm. And I start to delight. What are you doing, God? I get a call about, you know, some, some disaster that happened in someone's life. It doesn't have to be really totally terrible, but a flat tire or something like that. And I go, huh, I wonder what you're doing. guess this is what I was supposed to do today. Delight in what he's doing. Delight in what he's going to do. And delight specifically what he's done. What he's already done, specifically the cross. And so when we talk about praying without ceasing, we might as well say depend on God without ceasing. Because that's really what we're talking about. I don't think anyone would say, like, well, there's sometimes we shouldn't depend on God. No, we're always constantly depending upon God, and sometimes it looks more active than, than passive. Without doubt, though, there are those times when you're, gonna, you're going to formally pray, those times when you're going to bow in, those times you're going to go to the mountain, and you are going to pray. You're going to stop what you're doing, and you are going to pray to the Lord, speak to the Lord, confess to the Lord, Ask the Lord. And the question that Paul poses to us is, what are you going to ask for? What are you going to ask for in those times? 
What are you going to ask for yourself, and what are you going to ask for others? And unlike, I think, um, our own prayers that are usually dominated by earthly desires or requests for change in circumstances, Paul's are dominated by spiritual concerns. And as you look at the, the, the rubric, the spreadsheet of your prayer, again, how many are just earthly and spiritual? Not earthly like terrible things. It's not a terrible thing to pray for healing. Just asking, how many times have you prayed for the spiritual health of an individual? Prayed for your neighbor, neighbor spiritually, for your children, for your wife, for your husband, for your friends. Is that on the forefront of your mind? Because that's honestly all Paul prays for here. For a young church that is being assaulted by bad teaching, he could have prayed a lot of things like we often pray today. And I don't mean to mock Christian prayer, but I'm going to mock Christian culture prayer. Those phrases that we all use, it's kind of like when we sing songs and we don't really like really pay attention to what we're singing, but we're kind of in the mood like, oh, Jesus, all right. And you're just kind of going and you, your, your brain's disengaged. We do that with prayer. One of those famous phrases is like, Lord, please put a hedge of protection around this, that, and the other thing. You heard hedge, right? The hedge, the Christian hedge of protection. No, no, I never heard that. Well, you should. It's crazy. You hear it all the time. Okay? I don't even know what that means. Why not like wall? Why not fortress of protection? Why hedge? Hedges are like, I guess, the most powerful thing we can think of to defend <laughs> from spiritual attack. Okay? I hear a lot of people pray for wisdom. James asks us to pray for wisdom, and we pray for wisdom. Lord, give me wisdom to discern. Okay, there's nothing wrong with that. It just is like, you know, it's like the three things you pray for, or like the nebulous blessing. Lord, bless them. Bless them. Like, what? Bless them. Be careful, because like God's idea of what is going to bring a blessing in life might not be what you think. It might be quite terrible. But Paul prays for, quite frankly, what might feel strange to us because his prayers are so vertically oriented. And we seem to be like vertically challenged, and we're very horizontal in our prayers. Um, but if you get to a place where you believe and you're concerned with building more faith and more love and more hope, then this is what Paul says does that. Two things is what he prays for. Knowledge and strength. Knowledge and strength. Not on my top ten for the last prayers that I can consider myself have, have done. Foundation, though, the first thing is, is he... A prayer, a request that the Colossians be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all wisdom and understanding. So, you know, the false teachers have, have come, and maybe you've experienced this, and they've said, your faith is not full. It's the fullness of their faith that's, that's being challenged. And so Paul's trying to guard these young believers by trying to fill up their faith with something that's different than how they started. How did they start? A belief in the gospel. His spiritual awakening by the power of the Spirit. That's how they started. Paul writes the exact same thing in Galatians. Now, the knowledge of God's will is, is more than insight into how God wants His people to make specific decisions or behave in specific ways. That's kind of what our mind goes when we think of God's will. What's God's will want me to do here? What's God's will here? What's God's will here? God's will, God's will, God's will. Paul, I think, wants something bigger. 
Specifically, God's will is perfectly expressed in Christ. In fact, when people asked him, as he was doing miracles and whatnot, they came to Christ and said, how can we work the works of God? He said, here's the work of God. Believe in his son. Believe in his son who he sent. I know, but then what? Believe in his son. Paul, I think, wants here for his people, if you will, this church he's shepherding, to obtain a deeper understanding of God's gospel. To ultimately get a deeper knowledge of God himself. His character as it's fully expressed on the cross. And a lot of us don't get past, Jesus died for my sins, and that's it. And now, now I'm trying to be a Christian. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Back up. The gospel facts, if you will, are the sinless life and the undeserved death of Christ that I deserved. But there's so much more. There's so much more to delve into. There's so much more to, to process. There's so much more that we can understand and think about for the rest of our lives. This is what Paul wants. The heretics taught that Jesus was a good place to start, but that they needed some other spiritual experience to gain spiritual wisdom. Whether that be some emotional, like, you know, charismatic experience. Uh, whether that be um, a bunch of specific Bible knowledge and verses and theology that you have to get squared away or you're just not holy enough. Whether that be legalisms, which you'll see, abstinence from this, that, and the other thing, or make sure you do these things. Or even like more mystical stuff like they worship angels, we'll see in here. You need that stuff. The gospel is a great place to start, but you need that stuff to get completeness. And what Paul is trying to tell them, he's like, no, you don't need anything else. What you need is the Holy Spirit taking that same gospel and blowing it open. And taking that same gospel, showing this is how you grow. This is where you take the gospel into your marriage, the gospel into your service, the gospel as an employee. You go, come on, gospel, gospel. Yes! But it's not just the facts of Jesus. It's the reality of what Jesus did and then going and saying that's actually an example and actually a power within me to live a particular way in doing those things. And that is spiritually learned. I love how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 10. He says it this way. Verse 10, I believe. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, speaking about the Gospel. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's person's thoughts except the spirit that of that person which is in him so also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God and now we receive not the spirit of the world but the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom but taught by the spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual most Christians don't believe that why because they become Christians, which they know is a spiritual experience, something God does, and they go, okay, now I need to figure out how to do things to be a Christian. Wear certain clothes, certain language. We're talking about a spiritual birth and a spiritual life. Our faith is filled with a deeper understanding of the gospel that has to go beyond. Jesus died for my sins. It's, man, how does that apply to my life in a way that's powerful? And in verse 10, Paul says when you get that greater feeling, when the Spirit, you actually lean on the Spirit to be led and taught, 
more what that actually means, what it means for your God to come down on the cross and die, to live as a man for 30 years prior to that. When you get that filling, if you will, when when you start to, to learn more, he says that it will overflow into walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing in Him, to Him, sorry, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing the knowledge of God. So these are the things he's praying for. Knowledge, and this is what will happen. And if you're not filled with the knowledge of the will and wisdom and understanding of God, if that doesn't lead to Christ-like conduct. Intellectual assent to the facts of the gospel is, is not enough to accomplish anything. It's certainly not enough to change a heart. The gospel teaches us, though, and let's not forget this, because we can very quickly go into a place like, okay, I've got to do good works. The gospel teaches us that our walk, how we act, how we behave, is not the cause of our worthiness. Catch this, it's not the cause of our worthiness. It's that our worthiness is the result of our faith in how Christ walked. And belief in that and trust in that changes you. It changes you. So that walking in a manner worthy becomes less about acting in certain way so Christ will accept you. Well, I've already been accepted, so that can't be the case. What it becomes then, in talking about being a manner or walking in a manner that's worthy, is a commitment to walk in such a way as to reveal that truth. To reveal specifically Christ. When I talk to my kids, okay, five year old, seven year old people understood this. So, what's it mean to walk in a manner worthy? And we jointly had a discussion and came to the conclusion it means walking in such a way so as to reveal Jesus more. So, I asked them, How could you walk so as to reveal Jesus more? How could you walk different so as to reveal Jesus more? Notice I didn't say, so how could you walk, son, so that God will be pleased and approve you? How can you walk to be a better Christian? Then ask that. I said, how can you walk in such a way so as to reveal Jesus more? That's a totally different question. And it causes them to think in ways that where you delight in doing that as opposed to feeling guilted and despairing in doing that. The gospel question. If you believe the gospel, then endeavoring to live a life that pleases God, this is what he says here, a life that's fully pleasing, endeavoring to do that, like your desire to do that, is the only natural loving response of an adopted child who actually believes his father loves him. That's the response. Think about this. There are only three kind of mentalities you can have. Three people you can please in in how you walk or how you live. You can either say, I live to please myself. And you will see very quickly that that's a pursuit of pleasures that aren't pleasing. And will ultimately never be satisfied. I can live to please others which is very frustrating and disappointing and irritating. 
whether that be your spouse, your friends, whatever, or, dare I say, I could live to please God, which is what Jesus did. Jesus certainly didn't live to please himself because he willingly died to the own cross. He certainly didn't live to please others. He ticked off just about everybody. But in living to please God, he did suffer. And he did take joy in that suffering. Amazingly. He also prays, Paul does here, that is the commitment to do that, to live a life like that, because of what the gospel is doing through you, should transform the daily minutia of your lives. In other words, a deep understanding of the gospel should result in this. Bearing fruit in every good work. Okay, so it's implied that good works are going to happen. Why? Because you can't stop fruit being cut. Peaches are coming. So then it's fruit in every good work. Well, why would he say that? Here's why. Because we like to segment our lives into spiritual and not spiritual. Christian and not Christian. I'm a Christian here, my Jesus backpack on when I go hiking for Jesus. And when I'm in my work world, I'm wearing my mask of Satan. Whatever it happens to be, right? You're different. But what you need to do is say, no. Bearing fruit for the gospel is in every good work. It's all the work you have to do. Whether you be a man or woman, husband, father, parent, worker, there should be fruit produced through that. Jesus shaped fruit. That's what we're talking about bearing fruit because all life is spiritual. That's a paradigm shift. All things. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, glorify God in everything you do, I'm pretty sure the Greek means everything you do. I'm not a Greek scholar, but that's pretty much everything. Whether you eat or drink, I mean, how base level can it get? He says, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Whatever you do. Okay. That means bearing fruit. There should be fruit in all aspects of our life. The gospel doesn't simply declare to us how we're saved. And then we rest. We got our, you know, fire insurance card. Remember, the gospel guides us in how we're to live every day, how we're to interpret every circumstance, how we are to speak in every conversation, how we are to make every decision and act in every way. But the gospel, quite frankly, for most of us, is not a filter we use for most conversations and most decisions. I mean, as silly as it is, we get to a place that's a little bit closer and we start going, what would Jesus do? But that's so, it gets such into a bad place going that way. And as we do, though, bear fruit through our good works, wherever we're at, as, as we live a gospel-centered life, which means all aspects of our life, the gospel's going out, he says that that will increase the knowledge of our God. He says increasing in knowledge. So it goes like full circle. A profound, deep, concentrated, intimate knowledge of the gospel will impact how you live and walk and work. At the same time, that walk, that gospel-centered walk, will also impact your knowledge of God. As you live a life of 
humility, as you commit to a life of service even when you don't feel like it, as you commit to sacrificing and loving those who don't deserve it, as you even faithfully suffer, you will learn more about God. Your intimacy, God, will grow you closer. We often think that we wait for the feelings to come, right? Before we do anything. And the reality is in most things we do, including like working out, the feelings come secondary. But he says a commitment to do this, even though you don't feel like a commitment to pursue actively with intention to live a life that you know is pleasing because of the desire and the power of Christ in you, you will grow closer to God. Your knowledge of him will increase. Secondarily, in closing, Paul not only prays for deeper knowledge, he prays for strength and power. And he says, may you be strengthened with all power, particularly for all endurance and patience. So this is honestly the part of Paul's prayer that I think is, is most um, disturbing to us. By disturbing, I mean it's the complete opposite of how we pray. Maybe not you, but I'll be honest, one of the few. And of all the things that he could have asked for. And of all the things he could have prayed for the Colossians who are being assaulted by bad, false teachers, he asked God to give them strength. He doesn't tell them, you know what guys, I've been pre- praying unceasingly that God would smite these guys with sores on their hind parts or that they would be just disappear and go away or that their teaching would be confounded. He prays for the Colossians. He didn't pray for the false teachers at all or against them. I pray unceasingly that they will be, that you will endure and be patient. What are those two things? Well, you're not going to like them, so just prepare yourself. Endurance. Endurance has to do with finding strength, because he's praying for power and strength in difficult circumstances. Now, This is when, I don't have to explain this, but I will, this is when things become uncomfortable, so it can be a minor irritation, when your situation or circumstances you're in are unfair, unjust, or just simply unbearable. That could be physically, emotionally, financially, relationally, we run the gamut. A trial you don't like, that thing you want to change right now, okay? Trials of all shapes and sizes, James says, all colors come into our lives. And when that crisis hits, when that trial comes, if we're honest, most of our prayers for ourselves and for the crises of others are usually not requests for God to give endurance. Usually, it's a prayer for God to take the crisis away. Now, I don't think that's sinful to pray, though it might be misguided if that's primarily the only thing we pray for. God uses, he says he uses trials, he allows trials to make you really uncomfortable. He ordains trials. Dare I say, he sends trials trials to build our faith. 
Difficult circumstances are one of God's best tools to sanctify us. What's that mean? It's a very clever way or theological way of saying to change us and to cut off the parts that don't look like Jesus. To make us look more like his son. Why? Because that is the most glorifying thing and the most joyful thing that we can experience. Now, in essence, instead of praying for a change in circumstances in Colossae, Paul asked for a change of heart in the Colossians. That's, uh, if we just like stop for a second and go, I don't pray like that. My mind is always about, can I just get this situation under control? I don't know if the last time I prayed for endurance because I'm just so irritated by the situation. But if we don't have endurance, like the Colossians, and I think ourselves, we could easily despair and lose heart and start believing wrong things about God or start accusing God or start doing a lot of different things that are not healthy. Instead of what God hopes is to build our faith in the midst of the trial, even if that means not taking the trial away. But that's the easy one. Oh yeah, I can do trials, okay, Let's talk about patience. Because if endurance... Yeah, here it comes. I'm just the messenger. If endurance is difficult circumstances, patience has to do with strength to endure difficult people. Now I know everyone right now could name someone, we'll just pick one, in their life they wish was not there. Or they wish was different. If you just got an elbow on your side, you know who that is in your per- next to you life, right? The reality is that people, God brings people into our lives, and people come into our lives, family, friends, bosses, spouses, neighbors, strangers, who are sometimes irritating, sometimes abusive, otherwise just harmful in our view. And Paul, I think, prays here against the temptation that we all have to point the finger, to react, to get angry, get violent maybe, do something to get that person out of our life. Sometimes that means taking revenge. Sometimes that means running. Paul doesn't pray for either of those things. He doesn't say, hey guys, you might want to think about moving up to Laodicea where it's, there's no false teachers, run away. He doesn't say, all right, guys, here's what you need to do. Circle the wagons and intensely attack them by, through apologetics and arguing theologically. He says, I'm praying for your patience. I'm praying for your patience. And that's so hard when you're specifically maybe even in a marriage where you just want to go, ah, Lord, if you would just change this person, if you would just make them different, I have put so much time and energy, I have sacrificed. They have done nothing. I deserve, I deserve, I deserve. And the question is, okay, at what point do you think it's okay to give up? Wait, let me ask it a little bit differently to make it a little more convicting. At what point do you think it's okay to stop intentionally honoring God 
Because your honor to God, your life before God has nothing to do with anybody else. Whether you are in a marriage or a family or a job, you still have a responsibility to honor God in what you are doing regardless of how you're being treated. You do not want to let the sin of someone else come in and dictate how you are going to honor God and then point and go, oh, yeah, well, she gave me the apple. Oh, wow, that sounds familiar. What you need, what Paul prayed, one of the two things he prayed was patience. Why? Where does that come from? The gospel. How do I know that? Because the Bible teaches it. Let me prove it. He's praying that they will live like Christ. That God will bring Christ alive so they can deal with irritating people. Now, let's be careful. You might be the irritating person. Okay? So let's not get away from ourselves here. But here's what he says. Peter says it this way. Because Jesus gave us an example. Now, let's not, this is the gospel, right? Jesus died for my sins. Okay. Prior to him dying, that 30-ish years, let's not forget that Jesus was rejected by his friends and his family, told he was crazy, he was mocked, he was made fun of, he was falsely accused, he was abused, beaten, eventually killed. And all that time, here's how he acted. 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 19 says this, For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God. Notice that's what it requires. I actually have to engage my mind and go, okay, I'm going to think about God here. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, like be patient, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Dare we say pleasing? For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued patiently entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It's not too hard. It's not too difficult. Without Christ, impossible. With Christ, you have the strength to be patient. And that's where your prayer should be. For the typical Christian, as we look at this prayer, his prayer seems, let's be honest, if we just kind of judge with the flesh, it seems lofty, it seems kind of hyper-spiritualized, it seems a little impractical when we look at that. When we consider what we want in life, what we think the, the life, good life is, the successful life, the comfortable life, the healthy life, I don't know if these things are going to help me get those things. But when you begin to find Christ as supreme, the gospel as the center of all things, as this life as temporary, as an eternity to truly come, when you begin to see that getting Jesus himself as the most important thing, you begin to see then 
that knowledge and strength is exactly what is required to grow your faith, your love, and your hope. That should be the two things we pray for most and not that our boss will find a new job somewhere else, that our spouse will change into a different person overnight, or that we will suddenly win the lottery. In conclusion, Paul ends the same way he began with thanksgiving. Joy-filled gratitude for not what we want God to do, but what He has already done. And he says, giving thanks to the Father, this is what He has unceasingly done, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Walking in a manner worthy that's fully pleasing is characterized by a heart of gratitude for being able to walk at all. Our salvation is a gift of God. Our breathing is a gift from God. Our hope in anything in this life is a gift from God. We have done nothing to deserve it or earn it. And even if you, I, we don't get anything more that we think we want, if we get nothing else, if you don't get that promotion, if you don't have that ideal marriage that you thought you wanted, the perfect house, whatever, you still have cause to never cease in giving thanks to God for what He has done for you. Even if you get nothing else. And if we struggle in expressing our thankfulness to God there, quite frankly, I think you are consumed with what God has not given you and you have failed to believe the gospel. And you are trying to find your identity in something other than Christ. You've forgotten where you came from and you've forgotten where you're going. And that's how Paul ends the prayer. He echoes back to how Israel was delivered from slavery under the kingdom of Egypt. Now, Israel did nothing for themselves to do that. God went in, crushed the greatest empire at that time, picked up his people, and brought them out and said, you're my people. I'm going to love you and care for you and protect you and lead you. And God has done the same thing for those who put their faith in the Christ in the gospel to deliver you from your sin. So that sin no longer calls the shots in your life. You are a citizen of the kingdom of Jesus. And you enter that kingdom through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that kingdom, His death, if you will, shows that His ruling power has come back into this place. And He's restoring all things. And our submission to the King and our obedience to His Word, led by the Spirit, is how individuals and relationships and entire communities are healed. Living a Christ-centered life as the church is not only the shared confession that God and not ourselves has deemed us qualified. By ourselves, we're completely disqualified. He has deemed us qualified. It's not only a 
recognition of that. It's not only a recognition that there's this heavenly inheritance that is worth an eternal weight of glory waiting for us. It's not even just that. Living a Christ-centered life means we actually make the reality of His kingdom visible now. That His rulership comes manifested through us now in how we live and how we love and how we do marriage and how we do our finances and how we interpret our circumstances and how we talk all things like Jesus is king. I no longer live in a kingdom dominated by darkness, but one that is powerful, that is light, and provides hope. And so, I ask, and I ask this for myself, they will not waste our breath, and it is a waste of breath, praying for some of the superficial things we pray for. There's nothing wrong with expressing your desires, and I believe God wants us to do that. But let that not ever be something we do more than praying without ceasing that God will make himself known to us that we might make him known. That's what it's about. Pray without ceasing that we will know God and make him known. And you do that very formally through communion on Sunday. You come face to face with the gospel as you come to this table. Don't come up here slowly or quickly. Yeah, come here slowly. Because something's happening at this table. Something's happening here. You are experiencing intimacy with God. He's showing himself to you in the most visible way. And you're coming before him saying, I am broken. I am admitting that. I'm recognizing that. And I am accepting your forgiveness. And in that forgiveness, he sent his son. Yes, even for the littlest, teeny little sin, Jesus would still have died. And for the most devastating sin, Jesus still died. And as you come up actively, you actually make that known. It's not that people are watching you, but choosing to do that is a proclamation of your belief in the gospel. It's a proclamation of your citizenship in the real kingdom. So I pray he will change us, and I pray he will teach you about the mystery of prayer so that what you desire are actually things that you need, not the things you just want.